Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapin. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Remember, you can always catch us right here on your favorite Catholic radio station or on your favorite podcast app and now on our YouTube channel. And if you ever miss an episode, make sure to catch us on our website. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. I know we've got a really great interview ahead. Jason, who are you speaking with? This week, we're talking with Dr. Grazie Poso Christie of the Catholic Association. She is a radiologist and an eloquent speaker in the public arena on questions of life, religious freedom, and bioethics. She submitted a friend of the court brief in the Dobbs versus Women's Health, uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization, the big abortion case at the U.S. Supreme Court. So we're going to be talking with her about her brief and the important uh, scientific facts that she presented to the justices as they consider that difficult and important case. Yeah, it really is amazing the the science around the unborn child and how far we've come in our knowledge of that, especially with ultrasounds, which I know she's very familiar with. So I know our listeners are really going to enjoy her perspective, especially as a, a radiologist on this topic. So remember, everyone, if you're watching and listening, send us your discussion ideas. You can send us your ideas by sending us an email. The address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you can just leave us a comment on our YouTube channel, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. I'll be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I am now joined by Dr. Grazie Posto Christie. She is a senior fellow for the Catholic Association, a physician by training. She writes and speaks in both Spanish and English about Catholicism, religious freedom, and the intersection of faith and science. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, USA Today, CNN.com, National Review, Fox News, U.S. News and World Report, The New York Times, and many other places. She wrote an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the big abortion case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. We're here to speak with her today about her brief, some of the arguments that she presented to the Supreme Court for their consideration as they decide this important case. Dr. Christie, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you so much for having me. I like that um, I get to talk about um, such an important topic and and my involvement in it, which I'm, I'm very proud of because um, I think this this is going to be a historical moment in 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 our country and and worldwide, really, because the United States is such a such a leader on on so many cultural fronts. Say a little bit about the Catholic Association and your involvement in that. What what is the Catholic Association and why did you get involved? So the Catholic Association is a, a group uh, of, uh, of lay Catholics. Uh, we are, there's four or five of us that, that do media. Uh, we try to be involved in the conversation, whether it's in print or radio or TV sometimes when we can do it, um, in, in a way that is, uh, that always promotes our, our basic Catholic values, especially to be pro-life, uh, religious liberty, and uh, also uh, always a defense of the church. How has your own experience as a medical professional shaped your views about abortion and women's well-being? Well, as a medical professional, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so hard to talk as a medical professional these days because even the medical profession, which seemed inviolate uh, to me as a scientist, so, so firmly ensconced and, in, 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 you know, nested in the scientific, um, the scientific process that's part of our many hundreds of years cultural uh, heritage all through the West 
it's changing rapidly. So right now I feel that uh, what I can contribute, what I want to contribute is, is to keep pointing, pointing towards a Hippocratic um, appreciation of medicine, uh, the, the Hippocratic ethic, which it predates Christianity, um, but has certainly been informed by Christianity and strengthened by Christianity because it has to do with uh, you know, that basic fundamental idea that all men and women are children of God and must all be treated equally. And I'm very sad to say that medicine is being perverted away from that beautiful ideal. Say a little bit more about that, the perversion of medicine. What, what are some of the things that you see going on in the, in the profession that you're finding troubling? Well, medicine is becoming, well, first of all, there's been a strong push from the pro-death, uh, the pro, the death culture, the culture of death towards um, accepting or, or even causing death as a, as a part of the medical profession. So instead of saying, you know, um, sickness is bad, illness is, is something we should fight with all, with all our might, uh, we should make people as comfortable as possible and help them to accept death when it's inevitable. Instead of that, which I think is so ethical, so honorable and so beautiful, so noble and so high, we're being presented with this idea that medicine uh, should include uh, killing. First of all, the, the accepting of, of, of suicide for people who are very sick and then killing, actual killing in, in, the, in, in abortion, um, you, you know, eugenic killing uh, of the, the elderly has to be around the corner. After suicide, after assisted suicide, you go to the next level, right? There's always a next level. Um, of course, also the, um, uh, trans, uh, the, the attack on people's integrity uh, surgically and hormonally through the transgender movement. So all these things are going you know, further and further away from the beautiful, noble uh, values of Hippocratic medicine. Dr. Christie, you mentioned the historic moment that we are in as the U.S. Supreme Court uh, takes on the biggest abortion case in 30 years, the Dobbs case involving a Mississippi's uh, ban on abortions prior or after 15 weeks, so in other words, prior to fetal viability, which is a direct challenge to the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence as outlined in Rowan Casey. You submitted a friend of the court brief with other physicians. Now, typically those briefs, um, you wanna have something unique to say, you don't wanna be redundant. That's what the court is looking for. So what unique perspective did you hope to bring uh, as the justices consider this important case and whether to rethink the court's abortion jurisprudence? In our, in our brief, we concentrated on three, three main things. Number one, that fetal viability is a moving target and it's, and it's uh, changing continuously. And also that it's a sort of a crazy target because fetal viability in Birmingham is completely different from fetal viability in you know the best hospital in New York City, right? It has a lot to do with where you are, and I and we don't even have to talk about fetal viability in Jamaica versus right. So depending on where you are, fetal viability changes. So we are pegging the dignity of human beings basically on their on their geography, their geographic um, the geographic facts of their lives. So that's sort of crazy. Um, also, we talked about in our brief, um, my own special, um, I'm a radiologist, and so a, a lot of the brief centered on the fact that the science of fetal imaging has changed since 1973, and we have become, uh, you know, we are able to look into the womb and generate these amazing uh, images that connect our hearts uh, in, in solidarity to the unborn in ways that were unthought of in 1973. And even though 
that hasn't changed the dignity of those babies of the unborn. It hasn't actually changed who they are, or what they mean, or how, how much they're worth. But it, it has changed our hearts as a people, and 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 our laws ought to reflect the condition of our hearts. So now that all of us, you know, know very well that a baby at 20 weeks, at 18 weeks, at 15 weeks has this totally adorable <laughs> human, endearing. Um, face and and makes these gestures and and connects directly to our hearts and we want we want the court to acknowledge that that connection so we included pictures in our brief which is a very rare thing i haven't been able to find and the lawyers haven't been able to find any other briefs that have pictures in the history of briefs i'm saying not just in this time around so we have beautiful photos in our brief uh, of of unborn children and we're hoping that those photos um, really strike at the hearts of the justices I'm struck by something you said that law should reflect what is what we know in our hearts and, and that evokes the idea of the natural law, a law written on the heart, um, mm -hmm. the things we can't not know. And as science makes and radiology and other great advances in technology make more evident the humanity of the unborn child, it seems that the law should catch up with that and reflect that because we can clearly see that this is a human person it's not going to turn into something else. Mm -hmm. You know, I like what you say about the natural law because there is a terrible idea out there in the culture that science and faith are opposed. But the fact is, is that science, all science does is illuminate and explain for us and categorize for us the natural world. And the natural world is an expression of the creator. So science is never opposed to, to what the creator wants for us or has planned for us or wants us to value, um, it's always only illuminating the mind of the creator uh, because it is, it's, it's describing the created world. So science is an illumination of, of faith, not, never is opposed to faith. And, and I think in my field in, in ultrasound, uh, fetal ultrasound, that's especially evident at this moment in our, in our history. You listen to the oral arguments in the Dobbs case. How did the justices' understanding of the science come through or not come through? Well, there was a very sad uh, exchange with uh, Justice Sotomayor, who I, th I don't think she knows any science. But worse than that, <laughs> she was worse than that. She was um, she was very angry, and her anger was evident, and and her anger led her, you know, to say some really silly things. Um, and, and I think we are all in danger of that. Like we have to always, um, we always have to keep our cool <laughs> and, and, and Justice Sotomayor didn't, didn't keep her cool. I mean, I, she really, she, she was talking about fetal pain. Um, if you want, if you want the details, she was talking about fetal pain and, and she said that it was only a crazy fringe, uh, group of scientists who think that babies feel pain, you know, in the first or second trimester. And that's just not true. And in my own brief, we explained how our understanding of fetal pain has changed a lot since 1973. And uh, for instance, when in 1973, nobody would ever have imagined that you could take you know, a 15 week old baby out of his mother, operate on the child and put him back, right? Nobody ever imagined that that was possible. It's still to this, right now I'm amazed when I say those words because <laughs> it's such a, a miracle. But when we do that, the baby has his own anesthesiologist because we don't want pain and suffering for that child. And that's something we didn't know in 1973. So Justice Sotomayor gave herself away, mostly her anger and her 
not just her ignorance, but also her anger and her inability to think beyond the ideology that she espouses so strongly. Catholics were people who believe in the power of reason and uh, faith and reason working together. And it's ironic that a supposedly backward medieval institution like the Catholic Church is the world's preeminent defender of the power of reason. But it seems that some of these cases, the, the reasoning that occurs is not in the head, it's in the heart. And from your perspective, Dr. Christie, is, is it the case that if more people knew the facts about the, the science of embryology or the development of the unborn child in the womb, that people's minds would be changed? Or is it really more a question of the will? Um, and, what, and what you're saying about Justice Sotomayor seems to reflect that it's something in the latter, that it's really the heart that's making the decision here and not necessarily the intellect in every instance. I think that you have two sets of people that, that we're talking about, the people who are pro-choice. There are the people who are simply going along with the current and they have accepted a certain set of, of axioms and they've, they just live in that culture, they marinate in it, they're not thinking. Those people are very susceptible to reason. They're very susceptible to images. They're very susceptible to anything that wakes up their, the, what you said before, which is that all of this is written on our hearts. It's things that we can't not know. So those people are very susceptible. And I would recommend to all your listeners, um, find those people in your life, show them photos, say things to them like, did you know babies um, who are aborted at 23 or 24 weeks are torn apart with pincers and they feel every every moment of it. Would you do that to a puppy? <laughs> you know, say that to people like that because they need to know these things. Um, and then that person will say, oh, but that never happens. And you can say, no, it happens about 12 or 15,000 times a year in America. You know, babies that can live outside the womb and be adopted by loving families. And that, you know, you'll open eyes. Then there's a second set of people like Dr. like Justice Sotomayor and many other people, and they're just 100% in the camp of those who think of children as punishments, not blessings. They can't understand a life open to, to these gifts from God. Um, it, they can't understand anything that's not 100% self, you know, self ref, referring just to the self. Like they can't understand a life lived in relationship and how gorgeous that is. Um, they, they can't understand it. They've, they've, they've trained themselves away from it. And that is, how, as you say, that's an act of the will. So I pray a lot for those people. I, I think that's important for our listeners to understand and reflect upon is that, you know, as St. Thomas said, the thing is received in the mode of the receiver. And so we have to know our audience and what sort of messages and witness is going to be the most compelling if we wish to build and foster a culture of life uh, especially in the public square. So thanks for breaking that down for us. I think that's a really important distinction. As you, as you look at the issue of child development and you talk to so many people, both in the public square, through Twitter, and you're speaking, what do you think are some of the most compelling facts about child development in the womb that are changing for that group that is inclined to listen to evidence and have their mind change? What are some of the facts and images that you have seen that are the most productive or compelling to people? You know, one thing I do on Twitter a lot and in my writing and in my speaking is I refer to my, my fetal patients as my patients. And, and that, seems to, that seems to really make people sit up and take notice. And I'm always amazed at that because I, that's how I've always thought of them. And that's the classic way of thinking of them. But that really seems to make a difference for people. 
um, because if you if you pay attention to the to the to the rhetoric of the culture of death, it's always a woman, a pregnant woman, it's a pregnancy, it's a as though she's the only person in the room, and that's not medical, and that's not it's not uh, it's not correct in any way that's related to reality. I mean, re realistically, there's two people <laughs> in the room when you're standing with a pregnant woman. There's three of you, I guess. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is that now with 3D and 4D ultrasound, we're able to see the, the baby's face, the surface of the baby's face. We used to only see cross sections. Now we see the surface of the baby's face and we can see how, um, how, how human they are and how beautiful their expressions are. Um, the baby sucking his thumb, the yawning, the scratching. We, I've seen babies bite their toes. <laughs> You know, and yeah, it's just absolutely, you know, we're just, you know, human beings are just animals and we are, we're mammals and we have this, we have this uh, built in uh, sympathy for other, for other mammals that look like us, right? So we see, and also little mammals that are very small and uh, very vulnerable and, and have these, um, whatever the characteristics are of being a puppy or a kitten or an infant, right? So our, our hearts just flower when we see a little baby or a puppy or a kitten. So we keep pointing people to those images and saying, let your heart embrace them. You know, let your heart grow and, 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 and love and, and be full of solidarity for these most vulnerable of human beings. You state in your brief, and this is an important line, and I'm hoping you can unpack it for us a little bit for the, for the lay listener um, and the untutored scientific mind. And let me quote from your brief. As a matter of scientific fact, the distinct DNA profile of an embryo and its self-directed development are clear biological markers for human life and are recognized as such by biologists and physicians worldwide. Unpack that a little bit for us, because I think that that's kind of the fulcrum on which a lot of this uh, discussion uh, turns. Well, that free, that sentence, that paragraph had to do with the fact that in 1973, um, the whole idea behind Roe was that nobody knows when life begins. And this is something that everybody gets to decide on their own. And that wasn't true in 1973. <laughs> that, that hasn't been true scientifically for, for, I don't know how long, maybe since back in, in ancient Greece. Um, but everybody knows what the, as, as scientists, we know what the biological markers for life are. There is, there is a set of markers, there's seven or eight of them, depending on which list uh, you're using. But some of the things are that they are self-directed. In other words, my finger can't, has no self-direction, but a baby inside of me has a self-directed path, meaning that baby is going to, has a path that they're following, that I'm not directing. I'm, I'm a home for the baby, I'm, I'm providing certain things for that child, like you would have for a baby in a crib, but that baby will grow and will have, and has its own destiny and its own future, it, it, you know, unrelated to me. I may support him in that mission, <laughs> but, but he has his own mission. Um, that's a part of life. And that's, uh, that is one of the markers for life. And a baby inside his or her mother has all those markers for life that a puppy does or a tree or, you know, there are certain biological markers for life that, that we know and the baby has all of them. So we don't have to talk anymore. And everybody knows this. The entire pro-choice left understands that babies are alive. Sometimes they, you know, they, 
they waffle around that point, but they understand it because it's just beyond any kind of uh, discussion. Dipping our toe a little bit into uh, legal theory, uh, I think a lot of people are hoping that Roe and Casey are overturned because the justices declare that the Constitution is neutral on the matter of abortion and it should be something left to the states. That's sort of classic conservative jurisprudence. But mm -hmm. the science that you're unpacking for us and the arguments, I think, lead to another conclusion that the humanity of the unborn is clear that this is a person and a child in the womb. So should it be the case that the court embrace the arguments of some and say, actually, no, the child in the womb is protected by the Constitution, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, for example, because we can see clear evidence of a human being uh, who should have the protection of the laws of this country. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a legal expert and I don't play one on TV. So, but uh, I will tell you that I, I know that there's a lot of arguments going on. There are a lot of arguments going on amongst legal philosophers and legal, you know, more on the scholarly end of things uh, about this exact point because the constitution is clearly not neutral on the protection of life and if this is life it ought to be protected as you say by the 14th amendment but a lot of legal scholars say that that's just a bridge too far that we can't possibly so i i know that the that there are camps there are legal camps uh, on each side if i were a legal scholar i would be on the 14th amendment side because as a scientist i'm a hundred percent sure that that's a human being not you know a growing carrot or, <laughs> or 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 a tumor so i know it's a human being i know it's alive and if we have a constitution that protects every human every american life um then it needs to apply to that child that's very diplomatically and well stated dr <laughs> christie what advice or counsel would you give uh to our listeners who seek to build a culture of life who seek to engage some of these difficult questions of bioethics and medicine um, and want to be an important witness in the public square around the water cooler in their families for some of these difficult questions that you take on in your work and you do so well what tips can you give our listeners today i would say first of all be bold be brave this is the battle of our lifetime this one and a couple other ones, <laughs> but this one very much. And go fight the battle. You know, be be a crusader in this in this in this uh, wonderful wonderful battle that we're fighting for life. You don't know how many lives you could save, and and you don't know how many hearts you could you could, how many souls you can save, how many hearts you could heal. Right. And remember always that about a third of the women you're talking to have had an abortion. And many men that you talk to have assisted in one or, or have been hurt terribly by one. Um, so, you know, keep that all in mind. Always be filled with a lot of love, a lot of compassion. All of us are living in a world that's very broken. We are receiving lots of bad information um, and lots and we're pro propagandized constantly. So, and God takes all that into account when, when and he will when he judges, judges us. He'll judge us with a lot of mercy. So we have to show that same kind of mercy. And I would also like to add, if we have the time, that um, when Roe falls, which it may very well in May or June, and I have a lot of hope that it will, and all sorts of lawyers do too, so it's not just uh, a scientist hoping, um, we have to be prepared for what happens next. And it's not, and it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be very bad. It might be worse than before. It might be worse than during Roe because 
you know, the, the bandages have been ripped off, people, the veils have been drawn back, people are insanely uh, committed to death on the other side. The last three or four or five years, uh, our politics have become very angry. And I'm, I'm a little afraid of what comes after a row, actually. And we have to be very prepared with a lot of um, fortitude, a lot of wisdom, and a lot of gentleness to fight that next battle. That's well said and, and an important uh, point, because if it is the issue is return to the states for regulation, there will be some very contentious debates about what that looks like. And I think a lot of that um, existential angst and a lot of people will come out, but we have to be patient, bold, but uh, compassionate witnesses who extend grace and mercy to others. So thank you for that exhortation. We've been blessed today on the Bridge Builder to speak with Dr. Gracie Poso Christie one of the most compelling and reasonable voices in the public square, not just uh, as from a Catholic standpoint and in the Catholic community, but more broadly in the general public square as well. Dr. Christie, thanks for being with us on The Bridge Builder. Where can people go to learn more about your work and the work of the Catholic Association? Well, they can go to our website at thecatholicassociation.org. We're also on Twitter, the Catholic Asos, I think A-S-S-O-C. And, um, and hopefully you'll see us all over the place because we're very active and, and, uh, and thank you for having me. It was really, really great to talk to you. It's a blessing, Dr. Christie. Thanks so much. Thanks for your important witness in our community. We'll be back in a moment with our practical tip of the week. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, and now it's time to go to our action item for the week. Kit, what do you have for this week's practical tip for our listeners? So Minnesota's legislative session is getting underway on January 31st, so we definitely want to encourage all of our listeners and all of our viewers out there to be taking the time to pray for wisdom and discernment for all of our legislators as they head into this session. So we've set up an action alert on our website where you can simply click to quick send a message to your legislators, letting them know that you are praying for them. So the web address for that is mncatholic.org forward slash action center. And you'll be able to find action alerts there throughout the legislative session. And Jason, I know that there's a lot of big decisions coming up that are going to be facing our legislators that we're asking people to pray for. Do you have some insight into what our legislators might be working on this session? Well, the legislators are facing redistricting, so they want to get in and get out as quickly as they can so they can go meet potentially new members of their districts and uh, run for election. There's going to be a lot of races, uh, a lot of retiring legislators, a lot of potentially new legislators and then returning legislators. So they're going to want to be eager to get out. So there won't be a ton of things uh, that they're going to be focusing on, but they will be focusing on what to do with that large budget surplus, multi-billion dollars. We'll see what it ends up being, but right now it's 7.7 billion. That's the projection. And then there will be another February forecast where we'll get a little bit finer uh, detail and granularity about what that looks like. But uh, what to do with all that money? Is it making other investments in uh, long overdue programs? Is it tax cuts? Um, we're promoting something that we think is the best of both worlds, family-friendly economic policies and family-friendly tax policies that promote family economic security. So it's necessary tax relief and subsidies for families, but at the same time, it speaks to some of the concerns on the more progressive side about targeting 
relief and aid to those who need it most. Um, not the folks who are doing well or businesses that are doing well, but uh, families and low and middle income families in particular. So that's going to be a big issue, whether to legalize recreational gambling or sports book betting. We have charitable gaming in Minnesota. That's, uh, you know, raffles and pull tabs and those sorts of things, uh, uh, rather uh, small potatoes in terms of their, uh, their cost and the chance that people take. But when we're talking about sports gaming and sports books, those could really have a significant impact on people and families, especially those uh, with gambling addiction. And so we think that's a bad move. So we're opposing uh, sports betting and sports gambling in Minnesota. And that's going to be a big issue in front of legislators. And uh, so we'll need people to pray and think and act uh, and talk to their officials about why that is a, a, a type of gaming that we really don't want here in Minnesota. Wonderful. And just a reminder to everyone, check out our Action Center in order to let your legislators know that you're praying for them. And that website is mncatholic.org forward slash Action Center. So thank you everyone for tuning in again. And remember, if you're listening on the radio, make sure to catch us on your favorite podcast app or our YouTube channel for any of our extended conversations. Click subscribe while you're there so you're always notified of our latest episodes. And leave us a comment or question or just send an email. The address is show at mncatholic.org. And you can always catch all of our past episodes online at mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins and for Kitsapeniac of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for listening and God bless your day.